Friends and fellow philosophers, this is uh, Dr. Parler back uh, to talk with you about Aquinas. Uh, and Aquinas is five ways, uh, five uh, different paths that Aquinas says uh, are helpful uh, in thinking about the existence of God and, in fact, pointing to the existence of God. Now, just a reminder from last time, uh, you know, when you are thinking about uh, maybe somebody who doesn't know Jesus and you're thinking about, man, how do I uh, connect with them? How do, how do I make them see the truth of the faith? Uh, Aquinas is not saying, and I am not saying, that sort of the number one thing you need to have in your back pocket is uh, these five ways, that if you can just spell out these five ways in a really logical, philosophical way, uh, that's going to uh, convert people. That's going to make them see the truth of the gospel. Uh, but in fact, these five ways are helpful uh, as we, uh, I think especially we as Christians, uh, try to wrestle with uh, philosophically and, and rationally speaking, uh, are there good reasons for belief in God? Uh, maybe not just what is set out in scripture, but there, is there other evidence? Are there other ways we can think about this? And so uh, these five ways, to be clear, are not like the p- five pillars of the faith or something like that, uh, but rather these are some Um, philosophical angles uh, that we can take to really make us think about um, uh, understanding the existence of God and what we mean when we when we talk about God and so this is uh, for my intro to philosophy class Uh, this is this is from a uh, reading from a textbook called philosophy the quest for truth uh, the seventh edition um, co-edited by Lewis Poyman and Lewis Vaughn uh, and so this is really reading drawn from, from three pages of that textbook. So uh, I'll make some reference uh, to, to those pages where necessary or quotes where necessary uh, as we think through this uh, in these next few minutes together. And so the first argument that Aquinas sets out is uh, the argument from change. Uh, and this is he talks about this in terms of change. He talks about it, if you read through this, especially in terms of motion, uh, and so I want to say a couple things just to clarify um, what he means there. Because, you know, when I think about motion or when I think about movement, uh, I think about physical motion, physical uh, movement. Uh, in other words, you know, when you think about sports, the pitcher throws the ball and the batter, uh, if he's good uh, or maybe lucky, uh, will connect uh, with the bat and the ball. Uh, and get a hit, get on base. And so when I think about the, the motion, the movement there, uh, that's, that's physical movement. And that's, that's a piece of this. Uh, but when Aquinas uses this language of movement, uh, he's actually going using it in, in a more philosophical or metaphysical sense in that we're not just talking about physical movement, uh, but we're talking about something moving, quote-unquote moving, from being potential that is, it doesn't exist, to being actual. Uh, in other words, it, it does exist. Uh, and so that is a different kind of movement uh, than just physical motion. Uh, and so part of what he's wrestling with here is he thinks about this, this argument from change or from movement uh, is that when you look around the world, there are things in motion physically, uh, but there's also this movement of things coming into existence, things going out of existence, uh, particular things. Uh, and as he looks at this sequence of uh, things coming to be, 
things passing out of existence. Uh, part of his basic point here is that there has to be some kind of first mover. Uh, if you have all of these uh, pieces of reality interacting, um, you, you can start to trace that that movement, uh, that motion of things existing, things passing out of existence. Uh, and you can point to this, this kind of cause and effect where I trace back and say, okay, this thing came to be because of uh, some other thing. It could be something as simple as, you know, I, I see a small tree starting to grow up because uh, you know, the acorn fell from a previous tree, fell to the ground, um, was covered in soil, uh, received rain and, and sun, and now is itself starting to grow. Well, the reality, the existence of that small tree can be pointed back to uh, the reality of the tree from which it came which can be pointed back to the reality of the tree from which that came and that you you can start to to trace this back where you say the actuality the the existence of this thing points to something previous which points to something previous which points to something previous and so part of his point is that when we think about the change that we see in the real the world around us when we think about uh, movement uh, of things coming into existence and going out of existence that uh, at some point there has to be a first mover uh, there has to be, a, a, another way to say it is, a, a true actual being or a truly existent being uh, that brings all other things into existence. That these, what he talks about as secondary movers, things that uh, cause other things to be, but, but themselves also then go out of existence. You know, the, these things come and go, uh, and so there has to be some kind of, as he talks about it, first mover, uh, which is moved by nothing else. And he says, and that's what we, we, we say that God is, that God is um, this truly existent or actual being that exists and that everything else uh, can trace uh, its existence ultimately back to, to God. Um, the second the second argument is pretty similar to this. Both of these, the, the first two have these kind of like um, elements of, of tracing back where it's, where it's you're, you're thinking about how uh, if you work back far enough, eventually uh, it takes you to God. And so the second way is what he talks about is the argument for uh, causation. Uh, and here as well, when he uses this philosophical language of efficient cause, uh, which just highlights that the existence of an effect... Uh, is dependent on the cause. The existence of an effect is dependent on the cause. Uh, and so, you know, you, again, you see this in a basic uh, kind of physical uh, cause and effect way that, that if you are, um, you know, you're out on, on a canoe with your oars and you see uh, that there's this effect of the boat moving forward because of uh, what you're doing with the oars and the motion uh, that's being created there, the cause that, that's happening there. And this is, or maybe if you're not that familiar with uh, a canoe, you're, you're not exactly going forward. You're going from side to side or trying to figure out why, why this is not maybe working out in the way it's supposed to because of this reality of, of cause and effect. And so he says when you, when you think about uh, cause and effect here, uh, we see all these you know, we see a world filled with, with this kind of cause and effect. Uh, and so he raises the question about what is the, what's the ultimate 
cause? What's the, in a sense, what's the first cause that uh, triggers, in a lot of ways, all of these other uh, causes here? Um, yeah, I, I think about this. Um, the philosopher Peter Kreeft uses uh, an analogy of a train here to kind of help us wrap our minds around what's going on uh, with this idea a little bit. Um, and, and building off of his discussion, you know, I think about it this way. When, when you think about uh, a train, um, there's a sense in which, the, you know, the way that we understand cause and effect to work, that I, I could imagine a train that is 10 cars long. Right? In fact, I've seen many a lot longer than that. Uh, but we could, I could imagine a train that, that stretches out um, not just 10 cars long, but to, to a mile or, or two miles long uh, or three miles long. And I start to imagine this, and, and in some sense, that there's nothing um, illogical about imagining a train that is just enormously long, 100 miles long, 150 miles long, um, so, long as the, so long as it has enough power uh, to actually pull those cars. Uh, and so there's, so I, and I could keep adding cars on that in some ways uh, infinitely, and it, w- it wouldn't... You know, that it need a lot of horsepower, but it's not illogical or, or unimaginable. Um, but what would be imag- uh, unimaginable is if you saw a train that was moving, uh, you know, you, you come to the, the railroad crossing and the, uh, the bar goes down and the lights are on, um, and there's already a train kind of going across. Uh, and, you know, as the cars continue to go by, if somebody were to say to you, you know, this, this train is, is moving, but there is no engine. Uh, there would be something uh, deeply illogical about that. that. That You would say, wait a second, that can't, that can't possibly be. There has to be some kind of first cause uh, to this train that's, that, that's providing uh, the, the energy and the force and everything else necessary for this train to, to actually move, that it couldn't just... In one sense, you could almost imagine an infinite regress on the end of the train, but it, it wouldn't make sense to say this train is moving, it's going somewhere, you can see the cause and effect, but really there's no first cause. There has to be some kind of first cause to what's going on with with this train, and that's that, that's something like the argument that Aquinas is making here. Um, and again, if you look at the reading... He's. This is where he's. He's really philosophical. He, he's not. He's trying not to overstate his case, because at the end of this, as he does with the other five ways, he says, you know, there is um, this first efficient cause, and uh, that's what we mean when we say God. Uh, he's not trying to dig deep in terms of the character of God or understanding God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's just saying, look, when you look around the world, when you when you think about this philosophically, physically, and metaphysically. Um, there's got to be a first cause, uh, and that's what we mean when, when we when we say God. Now, I wanted to note something else here uh, in the argument from causation uh, that's connected to the Bertrand Russell article uh, that I had everybody read. Bertrand Russell article, uh, why I'm not a Christian, and he lays out kind of his own five reasons why he's not a Christian. I just want you to know in that article, uh, Russell does address this idea of causation. And he says, if everything must have a cause, then God must have a cause. Uh, in other words, he, he's, which is a valid question to raise. Like how, I mean, you know, if you're saying everything has to, there's just cause and effect, everything has a cause, how, 
how can you just say uh, that God uh, doesn't have a cause? Because aren't you saying everything has a cause and that's why it actually points to God? But that raises this other question, if everything has a cause, then God must have a cause. Um, so that's a valid question to ask, but I want to mention that because a lot, I think a lot of times people can then misunderstand what's going on here uh, when we think about this argument from causation. So Russell says, if everything must have a cause, then God must have a cause. Well, there are a couple of potential responses here. Um, a, a first philosophical response to, to that idea from Russell uh, is you could say everything that begins has a cause. Uh, so that makes sense when you think about um, beginning and causality, when you think about a being coming into existence, whether it's uh, a human being, uh, a plant, an animal, uh, other things that we would say, yeah, if, if it begins, it has to have a cause. Uh, but from a philosophical perspective, when we, we're talking about God, um, part of the claim here is that God does not have a beginning. Uh, and so there's a sense in which... Um, yeah, well, are we saying that, are we saying like God's kind of a special case here? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's part of the point um, that God is not like everything else in creation. Uh, God is not a creative being. He's not in creation. He's not temporal. And so the idea that God has to have a cause in the same way that all these other temporal things do, uh, time-bound things do, is a category mistake, that, that we're kind of classifying God as a creature not as a creator. So that would be one response is to say, yeah, everything that begins has a cause, but God does not have a beginning. God is eternal. And so it's not illogical uh, to say um, that God does not have a cause. Uh, a second answer, and this is, goes a little bit different route, but if, if you were to say, okay, everything that exists has a cause, and you were to grant that, okay, everything that exists has a cause and God exists, so God must have a cause, what, uh, another angle then you could take on that is to say, well, God himself uh, is the cause of himself. Uh, in other words, that we don't, we don't have to look for some kind of cause outside God to explain uh, God, but rather God himself, uh, th this is uh, a, a fun philosophical and theological term um, that we sometimes use, God's aseity, A-S-E-I. I-T-Y, that there's a sense in which he is uh, in himself the cause of himself. Uh, and so, again, someone might say, well, that's, you're, you're, that's kind of special pleading. You're just saying, uh, kind of making excuses. And I would say, no, I'm not making excuses. I'm trying to really understand when we talk about God, God does not depend on anything outside himself for his existence. And so in that sense, God is his own cause in a way that, that nothing else in creation can, which is exactly the point. God is not in creation. God is not a creative being. Um, the, God, the God is unique. And so there is this sense in which um, if we think through what Russell says there, if everything must have a cause, then God must have a cause. There are, I think, a couple of good responses uh, that, that Christians can make to that. Um, so the first two. Okay, so we've talked about the argument from, from movement or change and uh, the argument from causation. Uh, the third is the argument from contingency. Uh, and I'll just say a couple of things here to, to, to clarify. So when Aquinas says that something is contingent, uh, it, it's just a way of saying, you know, these are things that 
like we've been talking about. These are things that come into existence uh, and go out of existence. They, they, they don't have to exist. Uh, and so everything, every, every created thing, every temporal thing um, falls into this category, something that can exist, uh, but it also can not exist. Uh, but when he talks about uh, a necessary being, um, he, he's one way to think about this is, is hang on, okay, uh, is that a necessary being cannot not exist. Uh, that it is, in some sense, just inherent to uh, this being, this necessary being to exist. Uh, and so part of, part of his argument here, it says, okay, if you, if you look around the world, you see all these contingent things coming into existence, going out of existence. Um, if you trace it back far enough, uh, then uh, it seems like it would be the case that uh, there would be nothing uh, because these things can exist but also can not exist. Uh, and so far, so if you trace it back far enough and you say, well, um, based on this idea of contingency, nothing exists. Well, if nothing existed then, truly nothing, uh, then nothing could be existing now. Uh, because, again, you can see how these are tied together. If you, if you have nothing, or another way to say this in philosophical terms is you have sheer potential, but, but nothing is real, nothing is actual. Uh, so if you have nothing that exists then, you can't get to existing things now, unless there is some necessary being who brings things into existence, who in a sense activates and moves them uh, from potentiality uh, to actuality. And so he says that there has to be um, some kind of necessary being uh, who does this, uh, who is the undergirding explanation uh, for all of these contingent things. Uh, in reality. Uh, so that's the third, the, the argument from uh, contingency and necessity. The fourth argument, th this is one that maybe for, for, for people in our time and place, um, maybe is the most foreign. Uh, the textbook talks about this as our, uh, the argument from degrees of excellence. And so part of his Part of his assumption here, Aquinas' assumption, is that when we use words like good or, or true uh, or noble, that these are, are words that are not just identifying uh, a personal preference. Uh, like if I say something's good, I don't just mean uh, I like that action. Or, you know, somebody says it's, it's good to tell the truth. Um, I'm not just saying that that makes me feel good or, or I appreciate it or um, that's, that's kind of my preference. Uh, that if we say, you know, telling the truth is good, that we're actually identifying this um, objective reality uh, about telling the truth. That, that we're saying this is actually good, um, that there is some kind of standard beyond ourselves, that this um, fits the measure of, this, this measures up to. Um, and so he would say when we talk about uh, these different things that, 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 you know, if we're making judgments uh, about this is better or this is worse 
especially when we think, you know, in terms of morality, uh, that that better implies best. That that better implies closer to uh, th- this true standard of how things actually are. And so Aquinas says, this is when, when we talk about God, we recognize that God is the fullness of being, the source of our being, uh, the fullness of goodness, and, and every perfection uh, are ultimately found in God. And so when we use this kind of language, uh, he's saying, look, this, this points us to uh, the fact that there is uh, this real reality outside ourselves, that there is this ultimate standard. Um, and that's actually God himself, the, the, the character, the nature uh, of God. Uh, and so part of the reason I say this is so foreign to us is because I think most people, or at least many people, uh, tend to think about language of morality uh, as uh, just kind of expressing this sense of this is this is what I think is, is preferential or this is what I like um, w- without being able to actually ground this in some kind of philosophical or some kind of metaphysical reality. Uh, and so this argument, though, is, is, is really important for Aquinas to say that uh, when we understand how this language works, it points us to um, God as uh, the source and cause of all being, goodness, every perfection in all existing things. Uh, so that's argument four. Uh, the last one, the fifth way, uh, is... Uh, argument from from harmony, uh, and this is this is something like what people might think of when they talk about an argument um, uh, from design or or something like that when they look in the world. So Aquinas's point is this: human beings uh, possess intellect, uh, and this is necessary uh, to reach our what he talks about is our goal or our end. Uh, the Greek term there is telos. Um, oftentimes you'll, you'll hear, and we'll come back to that word in a, in a couple of sessions. And so part of what we mean there is that when we have intellect, we can see a goal, we can see an end, uh, and we can work toward it. And so, for example, when you think about taking a college course, Part of uh, what most people have in mind is uh, they actually have the goal of wanting to hopefully learn something uh, and pass the course. And so uh, they plan, they strategize, they do the work, they take the steps necessary uh, to learn, to grow, uh, to pass the course. Um, the point that Aquinas makes here is that we can see in, you know, as human beings, we have intellect, so we understand this. Um, but what about other other beings, um, not just animals or plants, but but a variety of, you know, when Aquinas looks around the world, um, he says a variety of natural realities. How do things without intellect uh, reach their goal uh, or their end? Um, how is it that we have um, ecosystems where things work together and, and function well, uh, even though there is no uh, intellect sort of in the different parts who, who each um, kind of know in the same way human beings do, identify and say, oh, here's the goal, here's what we're supposed to do. Uh, it's interesting, if, I mean, if you watch 
nature shows, which I tend to like to do, it's, it's interesting that it's really hard to avoid um, sort of reading into this kind of intentionality to um, whether it's animals or even inanimate creation uh, as though there's a kind of rational process there that, uh, that is underway. So Aquinas' whole, whole point in all this is how do things without intellect function in this way? How do they reach their goal? How do they reach their end? Um, and his, his point is there must be um, something uh, which, in his words, the way he says it, something which possesses intelligence by which all natural things are directed to their goal, and this we call God. And so there's a sense in which God is the, the intellect uh, that enables the, the natural world without intellect to actually function and work in, in this really uh, well-ordered and complex and, and nuanced way. Uh, and so when, when you look at how the world works uh, around us, how the natural world works, uh, Aquinas says uh, it's because of uh, the providence and, and care of the Creator, and we can just see that there's, there's something going on here that, that uh, as hard as we try to resist it, there is this personification that we're constantly tempted to, uh, at least in, in our culture, identify as nature. You know, nature does this or nature does that um, in a way that uh, sounds like it has intellect. And his point is that it's not actually nature, it's God uh, who is doing these things and directing all these things. Uh, so those are, it's just a brief commentary on the five ways. Uh, hopefully that helps to unpack them uh, just a little bit, clarify a few things, maybe raise further questions. Uh, and so if you, if you have questions, thoughts, comments, things you want clarified, uh, we'll engage those in the context of the, the class uh, more. Uh, and so uh, that's Aquinas. And until next time, blessings.